MSW Media. Prevail. C'est une programme pro politique. Histoire, la sécurité nationale. Crimen organisado, dinero sucio. Global corruption. Ta brutpou za démocratie. Et ahora, ATP. Et maintenant, comme ustedes, su anfitrion. Regoler. Welcome back to the fight. This time I know our side will win. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Sherry Jacobus is here. Sherry is the host of a podcast called Politics with Sherry Jacobus. That's available on Patreon. I've been on the podcast a couple times. She gets great guests. Uh, she's really smart and has a lot to say and a lot of thoughts about political analysis. So I encourage you to uh, go check that out. Sign up for her podcast. Sherry is one of the first never Trump Republicans, right? She's not a Republican anymore, actually. Now she's a Democrat. But at the time, back in 2015, uh, she was a Republican political operative specializing in communications. So she ran political campaigns. She worked on Capitol Hill. She appeared on TV shows all the time as a political analyst. You know, you saw her on Fox News. You saw her on CNN. Uh, she wrote a column for USA Today. And something happened to her with regards to Trump, um, which is a story we're going to get into today. I think it's valuable to go back and look at this now, now that we know what Trump is, what kind of crook he is, the mob tactics that he uses. What happened to Sherry basically was a foreshadowing of the entire presidency and post-presidency of this guy, this horrible crook traitor. You know, Sherry was able to see this really early on. She was approached by the campaign wound up getting ambushed by Corey Lewandowski, who she didn't know who that was. This is uh, back in May of 2015, and turned them down. But a story came out in the Washington Post about how Trump had a super PAC. This was, again, you know, late in 2015 or 2016. I forget exactly when. And she knew that Trump did have a super PAC because Corey told her at this meeting. And... Trump at the time was running on this campaign of I'm self-funded, nobody owns me, you know, that kind of thing. It's I had forgotten about this. Honestly, it was such a long time ago and it seems such a, a little thing now in light of everything that's happened since. But he was lying about that. He was lying about being self-funding. He was out on the campaign trail saying this over and over and over again. It was basically one of the biggest reasons people voted for him and it was bullshit and Sherry knew it. And when the Washington Post came out with a story about this, which Trump denied, Sherry spoke up and said, oh, no, no, this is true. I can confirm this because, you know, Corey Lewandowski told me this. They were talking about it openly in the meetings that I had. And the Trump people didn't like that. So they targeted her, um, you know, and went after her basically and tried to destroy her reputation um, and get her pulled from these shows that she would appear on and try to get her fired from USA Today and basically tried to ruin her life or for the offense of speaking up against Trump, right? And now we know this is what this guy does. This is who he is. This is what he does. He's a vengeful, petty, spiteful asshole. Um, but at the time, 
most people in the United States saw Donald Trump as the guy from The Apprentice. You know, that's how people thought of this guy, even though that too was a lie. So he has a public persona that's a lie. He's running on something that's a lie. Sherry tries to call out the lie and she pays the price for this. I think it's important now to go back and look at it to see if we can learn something from it and mistakes that we made, we mostly being the media. Because as she points out in the interview, back then, 2015, 2016, there was no MAGA wing of the Republican Party. Republican Party was just all, you know, old school Republicans. That's who was there. There weren't any MAGA people there yet. There wasn't anybody allied with Trump yet. Those things were still coming into being. The people who were really promoting Trump was the fucking media, putting him on TV all the time. You know, CNN gave him how much, how many hours of free coverage. I mean, it was ridiculous. And they wanted to do this because they were making money because Trump was, you know, good for ratings. Les Moonves, Trump is bad for the country, good for CBS, right? Um, so that was the time. That was the place. And Sherry tried to speak up and tell the truth about what was going on. And she paid the price. So um, for the first part of the interview, we talk about that. And I'm grateful to her for coming on and talking about it. I've known her, um, you know, through the Twitters uh, since late 2017, early 2018. She was one of the first people I had on Prevail as a as a written interview. She talks about this and I'll post that piece also. Um, you know, I've heard her tell this story on different podcasts and different places where it's written a lot of times. The story never changes. She's been saying the same thing, um, you know, for seven, eight years now. So that's what we're dealing with here is somebody telling the truth versus somebody who's lying. And, you know, I'm grateful to her for sharing the story. I just have so much admiration for her and the way she's comported herself um, in the face of, you know, real adversity. She spoke up when a hell of a lot of other people were too afraid to. And I think we all owe her uh, a debt of gratitude for that. You know, I, I just think the world of her. So the beginning of the interview, we talk about what happened to her. Because again, I feel like it's important now knowing what people know about Trump. And now that people have realized who he is to hear again and revisit what happened to Sherry. And then in the second part of the podcast, after the break, we talk about like stuff that's going on uh, in the political scene now. We recorded this on Sunday. Um, on Sunday, we did not yet have a Speaker of the House. So there's part of the interview where we're talking about that. Um, and she posits that, you know, Trump himself could wind up being Speaker of the House, which I think was in the cards. Um, you know, at the time, Gates wanted him to do that. There was another guy, I forget his name, who was proposing it. So we do talk about that. And obviously, we have this Mike Johnson guy who every time I read something new about him makes him seem even more awful. He's now the Speaker of the House. So please bear in mind that on Sunday, we did not know this and we were talking about it. You know, as, as she always does, Sherry has, uh, you know, a great way of looking at things and explaining things and, and good, interesting takes on things, you know, based on her years of experience working in politics and in Washington. And she's got a lot to say about Biden and Kamala Harris and, you know, the Republican Party in general, where we're going. It's a great interview. So again, the first part of the interview is, you know, she talks about herself personally. The second part, we get down into, uh, you know, what's happening now. So, so without further ado, we'll be right back with Sherry Jacobus. Uh, 
as a coach at Ohio State. He helped the predator, he huffs and he puffs, tries to make the house below. His mentor, Dennis Hester, is a child molester. Will the GOP back him? No, no, no. He wants to impeach Hunter Biden, dodge the subpoena, cause he's guilty. For Donald Trump, he is Luke Gabrasa. Liz Cheney told him, get the fuck away from me. Maga He's the biggest loser His name is Jim Jordan J6 Cooplatter He is Trump's attack dog His name is Jim Jordan Sherry Jacobus, welcome to Prevail. Hey, good to be here. How you doing? Good. It's nice to see you. Um, how? I guess it's already October. My God, but how was your summer? Um, boring, quiet. <laughs> you know, just nothing special. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm still still at that point where I'm trying to make uh, things be special after you know a few rough years. So the fact yeah. that I survived it, I uh, both uh, you know, well, in many ways, physically especially, is is good. So I did. Uh, by the way, hit the two-year mark uh, in remission at the end of the summer. So that's that great. That, that, that's great. Congratulations. And, um, you know, I, we're happy that you made it, obviously. And um, also happy you're now um, a Democrat. That's you, That happened. Yeah, That happened as well. Um, it's funny, Greg, because I, I didn't like, I've, I've been meaning to do it. You know, I always knew I would. Didn't get around to it because, you know, uh, and I thought, oh, well, you know, the primaries will be coming up still in, in my state. They're kind of far away. So when I put it on Twitter and threads that it, I was like, oh, everyone said, oh, congratulations and all this stuff. Like it was a big thing. And 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 what led you to it? I was like, well, I was running errands and I was literally driving by. <laughs> I remembered to stop in the place to do it, uh, knowing that I had months and months before the primary. So yeah, I finally got it done. It was inevitable. I left the party. I left the GOP the day after they nominated Trump in the summer of 2016. And at that time, we thought Trump would lose and that everybody would come back together because that's what people were telling me. Most of my friends and the D.C. establishment Republicans were not Trumpers at all. Um, they were, you know, just horrified by him. And so when he was becoming the nominee and then became the nominee, some of them fell in line to preserve their positions as cogs in the wheel. Other waited until after he was elected. But I knew that I could never sit at the table with these people again and do strategy meetings and work with them in good faith, knowing that they were willing to bend uh, even if they thought he was not going to be winning the election, that they were willing to do this just to have the convention and make it seem all happy, happy. And I was just like, nope, I'm out. So this was uh, this was the nomination. Did you did you meet with Lewandowski before that or after? Oh, gosh, it was more than a year before that. Oh, okay. You know, okay. Unlike Steve Schmidt, Steve Schmidt was meeting with Trump, actually being the one contacting Trump, asking to meet with him as late as March of 2016 uh, and flew to Washington, presumably on his own dime to do a presentation. Uh, no, I was contacted by uh, the Trump people, uh, a friend who ha was working on the Trump Exploratory Committee and was moving over to the Super PAC, um, the one they later said didn't exist. And that's where 
I became a target when I clarified publicly. We're going to get yeah. to all of this. Yeah. So I met, uh, I did not even know I was meeting with Corey Lewandowski. I had never heard of Corey Lewandowski. He was never a player in D.C. and of any kind. I mean, these are the types of people that that Trump would scrape up and, and employ because he likes to employ people who would never get within a mile of these types of jobs because then they'll do whatever he says, you know. And so I merely had a friend who, when he first contacted me, said, hey, I'll be in New York a lot because... I'm going to be working on the Trump Exploratory Committee uh, and then eventually move over to the Super PAC. I thought, okay, this is somebody who we're not such good friends that he's always going to tell me he's in New York because I'd moved from D.C. to New York and I'd known this person for 30 years. So I kind of had a feeling what was coming. Uh, There were like all these people in the Republican primary. And so there's some of us that always kind of they come scope out, you know, um, and one of the other candidates had had people scope me out for being political director. And I said, I really don't feel like camping out in Iowa and I'm more of a comms person anyway. So it's not unusual to be contacted. So you don't just tell the person. So the next day or two days later, when I hear from him, he says, hey, we're looking for communications director of the campaign. I was like, well, you know, why don't we sit down and talk about it? Because, you know, you can talk to people. I take as a consultant, take I don't know how many meetings a year. Uh, and so we met for lunch, you know, as a courtesy. And he brought along this guy named Corey Lewandowski, who I'd never heard of. They did admit that they kind of had to ambush me because they were having a hard time getting people to agree to meet with them to talk about working on the campaign. So, yeah, that was uh, that was May of 2015. Okay, so that was May of 2015. So this is okay. I developed a theory. I have a little theory um, that I thought of this morning uh, in in thinking about the questions to ask you, because uh, now you and I have known each other, you know, on Twitter and and through email and stuff uh, since maybe late 2017, early 2018, because you blurred my book. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you blurred my book, which came out in May of 2018, and I must have known you well enough to at least ask. So it had to be like around that time. This is now a while ago. This is now five years ago, something like that. That you, really? you know that, that I yeah, yeah I know the the time between the 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 quarantine and everything else. Time is like has no meaning anymore. Um, and here's what's my theory of, of all things Trump. Um, Because you had these terrible things happen to you, which we're going to get into, because I I think they're important now to cover. But my theory is that uh, there's a there's an Overton window, right, which means the Overton window is like what people are willing to believe and accept. So Trump and his people are constantly trying to, you know, to normalize certain modes of behavior. Like now we've we've sort of accepted the fact that, you know, we were not going to have a speaker of the House. Hey, whatever, dude. You know, it's no longer considered. A, a horrific, you know, whatever that we don't have a, an acting house speaker for at, now. It's it's the twenty first for what two weeks. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about that, right? Eventually yeah. here. No, no, no. no. Right. We are, we are, we are. So there's this Overton window where I think people slowly, slowly, slowly began to see Trump for who he really is, which is you know a bully, a criminal, uh, a con man, a fraud. Uh, you know, an aggressive, you know, rapey guy, uh, all of these things. And for most people in the country, not me, certainly not you, this these moments of rec- they didn't happen until fairly recently. Maybe the indictments maybe made some people be like, wait a minute, maybe if he's indicted in four different jurisdictions, he is kind of not so great. Maybe it's think? the yeah, the parade of terrible things he says all the time, whatever. But what happened, I think, is you were able to see him exactly for who he was way before everybody else. Like you had him pegged so early uh, in the process that 
I think they viewed you as a real danger to to getting the word out. You know, they well, needed yeah. to make you seem like you were not credible uh, because you knew exactly what you were dealing with. Uh, yeah. Does that, that resonate with you at all? or am I Oh, oh yeah. Face? No, yeah. I was, I'll just say it. I, I was a threat. Uh, there was no question about it. Um, I knew stuff. They it was, So when, when the story came out that Trump had a super PAC and he was lying about self-funding, remember he and Corey Lewandowski lied and they were threatening to sue the Washington Post and blah, blah, blah. Well, I knew who the sources were for that story. And um, it, it was actually Roger Stone working through Sam Nunberg um, because remember they were trying to punish uh, Lewandowski and Trump had pushed them out of the campaign and that sort of thing. So then they blamed it on my friend who had originally tried to get me to go to the campaign. He didn't even last until the announcement, you know, because that's what happens in Trump world. So I stepped forward. I didn't even know how to thread tweets at that time, but I numbered them. I said, Trump had a super PAC. The Washington Post piece is correct. Um, Corey Lewandowski told me all about it when they you know, went after, wanted me to come work for them. And um, boom. And that's when I, they started defaming me on TV. And Morning Joe wouldn't let me come on and defend myself, wouldn't even read a statement. Because remember, at that time, he was supporting Trump. Yeah. Um, and uh, I didn't have... Now. Yeah, I didn't have all these Twitter followers to get the word out. And so so right away when that piece came out where um, I said, yeah, the second Washington piece came out. So you told her all about it, Lewandowski. And he didn't, he at that time didn't say she came for her job because and it was acknowledged in the article that they'd come to me and I had agreed to a meeting. Uh, the second meeting took me three weeks to agree to, to meet to because I just didn't feel like it, didn't like these guys. I don't, you know, then I thought, could I work for them for a few months? Oh, no, it's just going to look bad. You know, these things you go through. But he agreed to the second meeting because why not? And that's when Lewandowski was just clearly and like hadn't witnessed that type of behavior. And I had witnessed some, witnessed some pretty bad behavior on the part of Republican men over the years um, and some women. Uh, so this was I remember going down on the sidewalk of Fifth Avenue calling my mom and going, oh my God, this guy, he's such an asshole. And blah, blah, blah. And she's yeah, like, well, no. don't burn your, don't burn your bridge with your friend. You know, I, so I waited. And later that day, my friend said, Hey, Corey was really impressed with you that impressed that he, you didn't get flustered. Like, cause he was such an asshole. And, um, and I was like, not flustered. He's an emotional guy with a big job. I mean, those are some pretty carefully chosen words. Like the guy's an asshole. And then, um, I waited a couple of days and then I sent a follow-up email saying, you know, thanks so much for thinking of me. And I hope you really enjoy the campaign, but I didn't appreciate the hazing. I'm pretty sure that you and the, I see at that time I was writing it off to sexism. Pretty sure you and others didn't get, didn't get that, but you have a great time and let's keep in touch. And that was it. So I had a paper trail proving that they came to me uh, for a, a job and I said no. And um, it, I eventually you know, filed a lawsuit for his defamation. They tried, Don McGahn tried to get me to sign an NDA that Trump would delete his defamatory tweets in exchange for me signing an NDA and never talking about anything I had in those early meetings. Oh, and, wow. Um, yeah. yeah, we were going to do it. And then I realized that I was being catfished. The catfishing started on the day that I, we later found out when the FBI was looking into it, um, was investigating actually the hacking of my email, which came later. Um, right, right, right. I, there's let's a whole get, lot. Yeah. <laughs> let's get to the catfishing. I want to make sure we get the story and the event. Because again, I think this is really important. Thank you for talking about this, because I know it it sucks to have to relive it and, and relitigate it. Um, and I appreciate you, you know, sharing it with us again here. I feel like I have to take a shower after we do this podcast to wash it all off me because it's so well, you know what? I was gonna say this up front, but I'm a terrible host. Um, we're gonna talk about this at the beginning, and then at the second part, we'll do all the fun stuff. We'll okay. talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> I meant to say that at the beginning. So again, the super pack that they had was called the Make America Great Again pack. 
right? right? Which is run by a guy named Mike Saletti out of Denver. Colorado. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I looked this up today. Um, you know who one of the one of the big donors to that super PAC was? Who? Jared Kushner's mom. Oh, yeah. Um, that yeah. was she was one of the early ones. Yeah. Uh, because Jared Kushner's father is legally barred at that time before he got the pardon from Trump. He was legally banned from being able to make such contributions. So not only did Jared's mom seed the super PAC with one hundred thousand dollars that she held, they held a fundraiser, one of their homes that Trump attended. He attended yeah. two of the fundraisers. You're not supposed to do that, right? If it's a pack. At that time, he had not officially uh, announced Okay. Um, but the problem was when he was saying he was self-funding, no one owned him. He didn't have a super PAC. And then Washington Post came out with the piece saying, yeah, he has a super PAC. Here's who gave to it. They're the ones that reported it was Kushner's mother and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so that's when, you know, Trump was lying. And of course, Trump supporters, this is pretty early on. So we don't even know who real Trump supporters were at that time. A lot of them were right. bots and trolls on Twitter. Yeah. So when I verified it and said, yeah. They told me all about it to the point, Greg, where I thought they were talking so openly about the super PAC in both meetings where they're even like, oh, did so-and-so do the papers? I guess they meant Dom again. Uh, but filing the paperwork, we know that Mike Saletti had meetings in Trump Tower again prior to the descent down the, the golden you know, escalator mm -hmm. in Trump Tower. Um, but so the point being, he had a sanctioned super PAC and was lying when he said he didn't. And that was the crux of the report, which any other candidate, they would have been out of the race in two weeks. Yeah. And I, that's I, that's a key thing. This, and this is what I mean by the Overton thing, in a sense, like that is a big lie that anybody else they would hit. And, that you know, you can't campaign on one thing that's like palpably not true. It's demonstrably bullshit. And yet that's what he's out there doing. But he has these things. Unless you're a big moneymaker for people. He was a big moneymaker for people, for the media. And that's why he survived. Yeah. Yeah. At that time, Greg, there was no MAGA Congress. Um, Congress was all establishment. There were no Trumpers in Congress. That's since changed. People who weren't Trumpers are now Trumpers, but also some people left were defeated. So now, little by little, you're layering over with more and more of these MAGA scary people in, in the House of Representatives and even the Senate. But back then, um, you didn't have that. The only people driving it at that point, the media. Yeah. And the media were, you know, there were as you they were in the pocket like he had yeah. Fox, obviously. And then he had Zucker also at CNN. Yeah. Um, even though he bitched and complained about CNN, he was fine with. Oh, CNN. that was that was part of the Kabuki theater because yeah. CNN was not able to compete with MSNBC in the ratings. And so this was Trump's way of, you know, kind of wink, wink with uh, his little buddy, Jeff Zucker, who, by the way, when he was at NBC, greenlit The Apprentice for Trump. They were great friends and Trump right. helped him his job as CNN. Uh, so every time. Trump pretend attacked CNN. He uh, he never mentioned. You never heard him attacking Rachel Maddow or or MSNBC. He never didn't mention them because she's effective, and he didn't want to draw eyeballs uh, mm -hmm. to that. So as long as he's attacking, doing this fake wrestling with CNN and attacking them, he is elevating them to be um, the equal opposite of Fox News. He was doing his little buddy a favor, and in return, uh, Jeff Zucker took Kaylee McEnany, who had exactly zero political experience, made her a CNN contributor. So then she could go to the RNC and then to the campaign. I mean, he created these people out of whole cloth for Trump who had no scruples, no morals, no experience, uh, no business being on TV, uh, giving any kind of political analysis or commentary. Uh, so uh, and he did this for him as a favor uh, and gave him the coverage because Trump loves the chaos coverage. He, if, if, 
he needed that. They needed each other still. And Jeff Zucker complied. And Jeff Zucker also banned me for Trump. Again, I'm invited on Don Lemon's show. I was on a show a lot. Um, the subject was Trump's financing. And I brought up, this was months after I've been kicked off Fox. Uh, again, kicked off Fox the day the catfishing started, the day that article came out where Sherry Jacobus says she uh, there is a super PAC. She met with Lewandowski, he told her all about it because this was a follow-up to the first one. The first one is when they were lying and blah, 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 blah. And so I stepped forward and said, oh, they're not lying. The report's true. So now um, all of a sudden, you know, Trump gets me kicked off of CNN. And uh, the Washington Post, um, Eric Wimple actually called them and did a whole thing on it. And he did a chart showing my hundreds of appearances. And all of a sudden it dropped off then. Yeah. And nobody would talk to him on the record. Well, I had senior producers that would leave the building on their cell phone and call me about this too, because they wanted me back on. And they were horrified at what was happening at CNN, uh, that Zucker, at, at Fox News, it became the whole network. At CNN, it was just Zucker. And of course, they won't have me on now because I've since come, gone public and they have to cover it up. And so whenever the media screws up like that, they can't undo previous messes because then they have to admit that this is what they did. But here it was. So that was in October. And then it was, I think, late November, like the next month I was on CNN. And again, we had this phenomenon with like 15 Republican candidates in the primary. I'd never seen like Fox News and networks, these people glomming onto someone in a primary like this, particularly someone so horrible and dangerous as Trump, um, who is at that point, I think people just thought was a clown and a buffoon. Right. I don't think they realized the danger. Uh, so I'd never seen this before, and I'd been in politics for a very long time. Of course, you expect people, certain networks to go for their Democratic candidate and favor them, and you know Fox would favor the Republican, but I'd never seen this in a pri primary, uh, except when it got down to McCain-Bush in 2000, and I was a McCain person. I was a McCain person from like May of uh, 1999 and was brought in at you know, late night burgers and beer meetings. And he that's when there was still a full field of people. And you know, my guy was the last one standing. So when establishment Republicans were yelling at me, why are you doing this? You know, Eddie Gillespie yelling at me in a green room. I said, I'm sorry, but your guy got out early, John Kasich. Mine survived. Yeah. My, my guy's the last one standing. So Anyway, I digress. So I'm on CNN. It's, uh, I think, November. And uh, I said, you know, because we were talking about this, I said, look, right wing media figures are propping up Trump in this primary because they think a Trump nomination ensures a Hillary Clinton presidency. They are sure that Trump would be the easiest one to beat. They're propping Trump up because they want Hillary as president because most of these people made their fame and fortune the first time there was a Clinton in the White House, and they want that again. They probably already have their anti-Hillary book proposals in their agents' inboxes. Well, that's when my old friend Rush Limbaugh was told to go after me, and I could tell that he was ordered to do this but didn't really want to because we were friends. So he he split the difference. He attacked me, but didn't name me by name. And that's how I meet these guys. And that's why I thought, okay, they really have a hold on him. But he lives in Palm Beach. He desperately wanted to be friends with the famous people. He had a you know Monday through Friday job. He couldn't travel around the world, have homes. And he was pretty much stuck there, Palm Beach. Um, and so that social life was very important to him. So when he was told to do this, he did it, but he wouldn't name me. And I knew that he didn't want to hurt me. Now, later on, he did. You know, um, I actually went out with Rush once years ago when he was single, 
sober and, and, you know, skinny. Um, it took me six, seven months to agree to, we just had mutual friends. So we, you know, it was, and he was actually a very nice, normal guy. Oh my God. So while. much damage he's done. So much damage. He's done. I know, but it, when he goes off the air, he forgets all about it. I mean, he's been doing it for so long that it's just not his, his life, you know? Um, and that's what I realized. It was just showbiz for him. <laughs> I do have to be honest with you. He was like a nice, normal date, interesting, good conversationalist, good company. I'll just tell you that right off the bat. Um, I don't have anything bad to say. <laughs> Just see an idea how politics so much is is phony and showbiz and everything. But then when I got kicked off of CNN, um, then it was done. I was doing a little bit of MSNBC sometime later after that. But for the most part, they, you know, nobody wanted to touch it because they were all afraid of of Trump. But again, these people, um, they had they made their books and their radio careers and pundit careers and everything. Um, when there was a Clinton in the White House, and it's always easier to go on the attack. Well, then they had to defend this guy, Trump. And um, I don't think people realized the degree to which he was getting helped by Putin, and no one knew what these bots were and this whole Cambridge Analytica right. stuff. But, um, you know, I knew I knew there was more at stake when I was getting threatened and didn't leave my apartment on the Upper West Side for five days. I knew when I was being catfished and hacked. Um, and it went on and on and on and on. For years, I don't even know if we want to get all the, well, all the stories, I but wanna... I was such I was such a target and it was such a crazy story, like a bad John Grisham novel to the point where even when I hear myself telling it back, it sounds like, oh, my gosh, this lady's crazy. Um, and then there are some people that know it's true, but they they also know that they didn't stand by me or help me. And so, you know, I'm still out there um, struggling after all this time. Of course, the pandemic and some family issues and my own cancer contributed to that. But um it's just, it's interesting to see how some people who used to be friends and allies went total full MAGA. And I know that they don't believe one iota of this stuff, Greg, but again, business is business. That's where the power is. You know, that's where the money is right now. That's where the power is. And uh, well, and the, the same know. with the people who supported Trump and worked for Trump and then all of a sudden saw the light just in time to get some book fame and TV fame, people you never heard of before. Um, if you were so stupid that you didn't know what he was and you have no business being a political <laughs> analyst, nobody should listen to it. I mean, good for you if you left, get to the back of the line. Um, but it's such a cottage industry now that it's it's just like a formula now. Support Trump. Pretend you saw the light. <laughs> Yeah, like, no, oh it's gosh. it's true. Even Bill it's my Barr, book deal and TV gigs. <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's true. It's true. I feel like the it's a contagion. The Trump stuff is like a contagion that spread over the party, and you know, you were an early casualty of the of that mess. You know, in in a, in a way, like it it hit you early. And when you think back to the things that you were talking about and the tactics that they used against you, which is catfishing. For people unfamiliar, or somebody pretending to be somebody else approaching you online and trying to like ferret out information and stuff like that, then you're getting hacked and you're getting threatened. And these are things now we look back on Trump and we know this is what he does. He's he is a threatening guy. He ex, he extorted Zelensky. We have it on the record. You know, he got impeached for doing the same kind of things that his thugs did to you. So there's a through line there. And this is what I mean, I guess, by the um, the Overton window moving, like you telling this story in 2016 isn't the same as telling it now, because now I think more people are like, oh, yeah, of course, Trump did that. Duh. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, uh, you know, you look back at the players and, you know, Lewandowski kind of 
in and out of the spotlight for, you know, the last seven years or whatever, never looking good you know, <laughs> the whole time, always in, in some nefarious way. And some of the other players too, you know, Don McGahn slides into the role as the, uh, you know, White House counsel and is, you know, important in getting the judges in and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, it's just a thing that happened. And I think that, um, you know, to your point also, when you came forward, on some level, I think you thought, I'm going to take, this is going to take this guy out. This is going to yeah. end him. You know, you're like Luke Skywalker hitting the Death Star. This thing's going to blow up now. And then, and it should have, and it didn't, right? Over and, and over and over again. Over I mean, with the FBI, the FBI investigation, I thought they were getting ready for indictments. You know, one or four months, they called me a lot, dozens and dozens of calls, and they said, we need to meet with you. And I knew that they were close and they needed to verify something without um, putting me in jeopardy. I won't go into all the details, but it's, I learned a lot about how the FBI works. And then I also know at what point when the key important people in Trump world discovered that there was an FBI investigation by, that started, by the way, before, right before he won and before he was sworn in. Um, but then when he became president, remember Jeff Sessions was his AG. And uh, J.D. <laughs> Gordon, I think, got questioned by the FBI, but they pretended they, they were talking about me. And then, uh, of course, I start tweeting it because I'm thinking, do I want to wait years and years? I was thinking the FBI was just using me um, to get to bigger fish. And so I kind of wanted this stuff to go public. And when J.D. Wharton figured out that the FBI, when they talked to him, were not investigating me, that they were trying to find out where he got this little piece of information that he was peddling to uh, USA Today to try it. The first time they went after me at USA Today, they, tr they tried a couple of times to get me fired. Um, and uh, um, it was information from my hacked emails that I guess JD didn't know where it came from. Um, and um, all of a sudden, the FBI shuts down this investigation when they were so close. That F the FBI investigation's in New York, though, right? Yeah, it was the New York FBI. Yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. Kallstrom, and that's you know we know now that's that's Trumpland. That's what they called it. The at the FBI it was called that, and you and you had yeah. the bad. The McGonagall guy is there and Kallstrom. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's it's bad there. But yeah. not all of them would have known about the investigation. Yeah. Um, but when investigations, then I had, um, so I start putting stuff on Facebook and everything and I get contacted by an attorney representing some IC whistleblowers, Intel community uh, whistleblowers who also were hacked. And there were some common threads um, uh, having to do actually with Holland and Knight, which is Trump's firm a longtime firm in, in Florida. And then their DC office was handling his transition. And uh, they were also involved in my situation, which is why it's interesting that Michael Cohen is now this big hero because there's so much he knows about this because he would have been the one giving Holland and I their instructions to go and try and find out certain things about me that they had from my hot hacked emails that they couldn't just go to a judge and say, hey, you got to move this thing out of DC. Uh, they wanted venue change. I was very careful to be spending enough time in New York, but came back to, to Maryland. Um, uh, to help take care of my dad, they would have only known my whereabouts from my hacked emails. And um, they were trying to independently verify that because they can't just go to a judge and say, we want this moved and we know where she is because we ever hacked emails. Right. You know? Yeah. First of all, yeah. they didn't really know, but they were trying to do anything. So there were several data points that the FBI had uh, showing that the Trump people had my hacked emails. And one of them was J.D. Gordon using information to USA Today, claiming that I had done work for Ukraine and therefore my op-ed that I wrote about him uh, and his role in the RNC platform language on Ukraine and Putin. Um, the only platform item that the Trump campaign got involved in, by the way, 
Correct. Um, and uh, he wanted me fired saying that Sherry worked for, so th- their inside guy at USA Today was like, where do you work for you? You know, they're all, they're accusing me. I'm like, I'm sorry, where are you getting this information? And did JD Gordon provide any backup? Well, no, I'm like, and, and that's when they went, they should have asked him that before accusing me. They should have said, JD, where are you getting, first of all, well, how can JD Gordon get this guy on the phone? But I can't, you know, that's what I'm saying uh, at USA Today, but they're old friends. And um, it was an insider, white right-wing guy at USA Today. And the question should have been, JD, uh, do you have anything to back up this claim? No. Okay. Well, then this conversation is over. Instead, they're tracking me down and accusing me. I'm like, and I immediately called the FBI um, because I knew that this was information from my hacked emails. Have I ever done work for Ukraine? No. But years before this, um, I had a client who couldn't pay me. um, So he gave me... um, um, shares like 4.4% of his worthless software company. Okay. I'm like a country doctor, you know, I work for chickens. Uh, and, uh, you know, just never thought anything of it. Well, then it had to do with identification verification for security. And so he had been approached then for the software to help out to for a bid to be a sub subcontractor on a defense contract. And it was for a foreign country and it was to do um, identification verification to protect their devices, computers, phones. And I wasn't allowed to know what the country was because there were any NDAs all around. Um, but we knew it was a U.S. contract. And then they decided to put me in on the proposal for future work with my little firm. So now I could know what the country was. And it was Ukraine. Because remember, Putin had um, attacked uh, Ukraine computer, there aren't, yeah, a, a cyber attack. And so this was all legit and on the up and up and very excited. And we mostly uh, communicated by text or phone but there was just enough email tra- traffic that somebody who had access to my locked emails would know that at one point, a few years before that, there was something going on with Ukraine, you know, the good guys. Um, yeah. We didn't get the contract. It was one of those things that, you know, you hope you do, but like so many things, you know. So this was big to the FBI. Like, okay, now we're getting somewhere because J.D. Gordon, where the hell did he get this information? And I don't think that J.D. Gordon knew what the source was of the information, um, but he had gotten it from someone. And shortly after, and so obviously when he realizes that the FBI is investigating him for this information, once he figures that out, um, he had to pay a lawyer, all that. So he would go to his source and say, where the hell did you get this information? Now I got the FBI after me. And um, it's real odd because after that, Michael Caputo started paying J.D. Gordon's legal fees. So he clearly got it from Michael Caputo. It would seem. Who's a Roger? Yeah. Yeah. So those guys are all in on it. They're all in on the catfishing. It's all connected. And the FBI knew that too. They, they said, this catfisher doesn't have two dimes to rub together. And all of a sudden he's giving you $500 gift certificates. Okay. Now we got something. Yeah. So it was just this, it's a scary long web. Um, and um, I couldn't get any reporters interested. Well, there, Politico did some, and then Politico did know um, they were coming close to printing a piece that was a little more in depth than it was going to verify, in fact, that uh, a CNN senior producer said, yes, we got orders from on high to stop booking Sherry Jacobus because of Trump. And also they were going to they were going to nail Holland and Knight for um, doing this type of work for Trump. Uh, and whoever gave Holland and Knight their instructions, that would have been Michael Cohen. So Michael Cohen is no no hero. I mean, I'm glad he's coming forward on some things, but he's sitting on a lot of information. I think we need to be really careful about who we make these heroes and stars. It's great to be 
thankful that they finally are doing the right thing, but we go too far when we elevate them to these personalities. And I feel that way just about rank and file people that used to support Trump and no longer do, um, including um, George Conway. It's all too self-serving. And then then they all of a sudden they have to become media stars as a result. And that's it's weird how suspect. that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, people we've never heard of before all of a sudden. Yeah. So it's, it is a, it's a formula. Yeah. Uh, My, Michael, I mean, and he's with him until it becomes clear that he's going to go to prison for a while, you know, like that's, it takes that level of uh, threat before he finally sees the light and good on him for, you know, straight in for what he's done since fine. Well, but, and yeah. even George, George Conway, uh, first he went, he was the new Trump. They knew Trump well, um, but they were, the Conways were with the Mercer money and the Mercers were Ted Cruz people. Uh, Cause Corey Lewandowski told me that um, he had a meeting set up with Kellyanne and she stood him up. It was some event. And I, I specified, I said, so you had a place and time set up and she just didn't show. He said, yeah, he goes, she's going with that, the Mercers and Cambridge Analytica and cruise. I'm like, okay, see, I'm getting this information from him in like May of 2015. Yeah. Um, so look, think of the context then. I didn't even know like these, some of these people are. I mean, I've known Kellyanne forever. Uh, and so then, um, then when Kellyanne uh, and George leave uh, Cruz and go to Trump, they did so because that's where the Mercers were going, the Mercer money. And then when Trump wins, and we've all seen the pictures of George celebrating wearing the Make America, Make America Great Again hat, um, he goes to be, he, and he had before that been flying around the Trump plane with Trump. I mean, he was very close to them. So now he's up for the job of solicitor general. And um, I think he makes the top three. He wanted to be Trump's solicitor general, arguing cases for Trump in front of the Supreme Court. Um, he didn't get the job, but word got out. All right. So now he goes for a second job at Trump's DOJ. Word gets out. He immediately pulls out. So all this stuff about he was he had the job, he was offered the job. No, he wasn't. He was supposedly one of the finalists, but he doesn't want to be humiliated twice, you know. Yeah. So he pulls out. All of a sudden, he becomes a never Trumper. Um, I think that the deal was Kellyanne was probably supposed to stick around for a year and a half and then leave the administration. But Kellyanne, you know, she likes the cam the cameras. So uh, George shows up at our secret bi monthly um, never Trump meetings in D.C. Um, the, we were told they were secret because some people could lose their jobs if uh, people knew they were there. And all of a sudden George is there and he had done his first piece, I think in the Washington Post as never Trump. And I knew there was an agenda there. I knew he wasn't fooled by Trump. And all of a sudden, you know, this was a couple of weeks before Justice Kennedy announced his retirement mm -hmm. and George's good friend, Brett Kavanaugh was nominated. They desperately needed prominent never Trump support for Kavanaugh in order to make sure you score Susan Collins. So no fewer than three people in our Never Trump group that had columns wrote them in support of Kavanaugh. That would be Bill Crystal, Linda Chavez, Amona Tarrant. There might've been others. So I left that group, but I knew, and all of a sudden then George is this star and he had strategically been, um, it operated in obscurity strategically for decades. And all of a sudden he steps in the limelight. I predicted then he'd start some kind of a group, protect him and Kellyanne. He did, Lincoln Project, uh, which somebody like him has no business starting a group like that. Um, I mean, he's a corporate lawyer. He's also not somebody who should be on TV commenting, uh, giving commentary on some of the stuff we're going through now. We need former federal prosecutors. We need people who have worked in an oversight function on Capitol Hill. We need true constitutional uh, experts, lawyers, uh, you know, professors, Lawrence Tribe, people like that. George is a wealthy corporate lawyer, period. 
Um, so people say, well, he's so smart. Well, frankly, for the, those of us who don't have law degrees, every, anyway, it's going to sound smart, um, but it just goes to show you kind of how corrupted the whole system is. Does he do an okay job on TV? Well, shouldn't don't we deserve better than that? Like during COVID, um, it, we were very clear about we wanted people who understood the science and people who were immersed in the science and, and, and the medical aspects of this and, um, and health aspects of this. We, you know, and so I think we deserve that um, across across the board um, in terms of, you know, political experts as well. You know, there's thousands of people who really are political experts have, have had made their living at this. And until you've actually been paid and had to make a living and be accountable for the advice you give based on your research, your messaging, what you know about this. I mean, I even taught this stuff at the master's level as well as being a practitioner, running campaigns and working on Capitol Hill. Um, but until you've done that, all you're doing is lifting talking points that you found on Twitter that somebody else wrote and going on TV and doing it. That works for a while, but I think at some point we get hot. Everything gets dumbed down. And then when we need the real stuff, we don't know who to trust, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good that's a good segue into part two, the fun part of the. Of the okay. <laughs> um, and again, I want to say thank you for sharing all that, because I do think it's really important that we keep bringing this up because it's I think now what happened to you makes more sense to people okay. listening, you know, and uh, this is this is what this guy does. It's what he does. Um, anyway, we have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Sherry Jacobus. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. 
and a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, we're back with Sherry Jacobus. Before we, before our very long break, uh, we were talking about, um, you know, communication channels and stuff like that and, and the flow of information. So I want to spend the, the, the next part of this just asking you stuff about what's happening now. So um, Elon Musk has totally ruined Twitter, right? And yeah. the yeah. last week, uh, two weeks, really, since the, the, the horrible, um, you know, uh, Hamas attacks, it's just been a shit show with information. So um, what's your experience with, with X as they're now calling it? Like, how have you seen it kind of disintegrate before your eyes in real time? Like what, what's your experience with it? Well, we know that um, he was working with, and we think it was Peter Thiel, um, uh, but somebody who had a, a whole uh, memo to him outlining, you got to buy this thing, you got to destroy it, get mm-hmm. rid of the blue check verification. The blue check verification uh, was useful uh, for those of us, first of all, who spent a lot of time creating content and giving information for which we are accountable because you know it's us. Um, and to get that blue check mark, we had to have a certain degree of expertise. Um, so he took that away and now you just get lost in, in the shuffle. He started changing things so that uh, burying some of us. I don't get the the attention on, on Twitter that I used to. I've lost a lot of followers. Most people have. Um, and yeah. we see this uh, misinformation, disinformation, out and out lies put out there. It was, um, I don't think that he he is destroying it on purpose. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's a given. People say, is he destroying it on purpose? Like, well, yes, just accept that right off the bat. I think we knew that early on. So be smart and understand that that was the plan. And then the question is why? Why did he, why is he doing this? And I think we now kind of are figuring out why, whose side he's on and what he's up to. Um, and, um, you know, he took away verification from New York Times the other day. Uh, so he's up to something. Um, I think he's anti-Semitic. Um, he's white supremacist. He wants to hang out with the, the big international thugs. I think he's pro-Putin. I think he's everything that we've feared. Uh, yeah. And so if you suspect it in this case where there's smoke, there's fire, he's dangerous. I think like a lot of things that are happening, we tend to think of them as being um, independent, isolated off to the side that are uh, not connected. Um, I think, unfortunately, we should accept the fact from what we've seen in recent years that it's very quietly a lot of these things are connected. A lot of the players implementing parts of the plans don't necessarily know what the overall machinations are for those who are pulling the strings. But I do think that is part of a larger conspiracy. And I think that Elon Musk is a part of that. Just simply removing the ability to see a headline when you put something on Twitter so that you you are you are making it almost impossible for people to get information 
that was inexplicable, stupid, and done for a nefarious reason. Yeah. And that's a little bit frightening. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think he's another one. We were talking at the beginning about, you know, how people see Trump differently now than they did in 2016. Um, you know, Elon Musk presented it as this great genius and then as kind of a clown and kind of a buffoon. And now we're like, oh, no, he's actually like a fucking James Bond villain. He's like working yeah. for Spectre, you know, basically. Yes. He he's sounds like dangerous. it. He looks like it. And it's, we, we you know, hey, this joke isn't funny anymore. It's not. It's not. And we still have people, seemingly smart people saying, oh, these tinfoil hat conspiracies. And it's just, you know, we should really, I mean, when you, when history looks back on, on eras such as these, when this stuff is happening and people go, why couldn't people see at the time what was happening? Why couldn't they connect the dots? And then you're like, well, look what we're going through now. Yeah. Or, you know, um, yeah, no, that's a, it's a good point. right in front of us. And people are like, oh, you don't know that. And there's all these bots and trolls and we know they're bots and trolls, but uh, um, this is happening. And I've noticed that a lot of people get bought out or they make it so difficult that um, they can't use their voice. And that's Elon Musk is part of that. Uh, there's always people. Everybody has their price. And I see some very nasty, bad players finding the price uh, of some people who were doing who, so who were like legitimate never Trumpers and stuff like that. But everybody has their price. And guys like Putin know this. Guys like Trump know this. Guys like Elon Musk know this. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It must be nice to have forty four billion dollars to spend on, you know, that. Not that it's his money. We don't know that it's his money. Yeah. The Saudis, it's like that's like nothing. That's that's. Yeah. That's pocket change, you know. Yeah, he's he's doing this for a reason. Yeah, and the reason it goes beyond just him. Um, okay, next question. This has been quite a week, I think, for our president Joe Biden. You know, right from the beginning of the the uh, after the attacks, I think he he's just comported himself really well. You know, I think going to Israel is kind of a baller move. I mean, you know, that, so yeah. Trump would never fucking do that in a million years. Oh, I think a no. lot of people yeah. wouldn't. Remember, uh, Trump Trump wouldn't go to a, a a World War One cemetery in France because it was raining, and he didn't want to mess up that that rat's nest and his orange makeup. So yeah. yeah, yeah, let's let's draw the contrast. So he goes to Israel, meets with the families of the hostages, which Netanyahu had not done. You know, he's hugging everybody like he does. Um, gives a great speech there. Kind of threads the needle between we have to protect Israel militarily, but also understand that, you know, that most of these people in Gaza are not part of Hamas and we have to make sure that they don't suffer and all that, you know, is quietly negotiating to have uh, humanitarian stuff brought in there, trying to meet with these, uh, you know, the other presidents of uh, or leaders of neighboring countries and wound up, I guess, doing that on the phone and pulling the rabbit out of the hat, then came back and gave that great speech the other night. So uh, I, I think this is like, you know, I like him anyway, but I thought this was a fantastic week. What are your thoughts on him heading into uh, next year, which is, I think, an election year, I want to say. Oh, gosh, um, I have a lot to say about this. First of all, his his performance as president, this steady, reliable thing, it comes with wisdom and experience, which means age. Uh, and uh, <laughs> he he also uh, knows what to do with Israel and knows that uh, with wh everything that that we are now doing because of him uh, with Israel, should they cross that line and start um, doing to civilians what what Hamas did, a change in U.S. support or tone towards Israel will reverberate and mean something. So by going in and, and being very clear about what we're doing in the world, knowing it, um, 
means that when that changes, that's going to mean something big. And he knows this. I mean, he was chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee for, for all those years. Um, he started out as the youngest senator. Um, he, when he was elected, he was too young to serve. He was 29 years old, and you have to be 30 years old. But he was turning 30 before he was being sworn in. So in those couple of short months, he also lost his wife and daughter. And both of his sons were injured in the, in the, in the car accident. Uh, so he had the wisdom of an old man who's lived a life when he was young and then went and served and served well. Uh, and then we see him get to the point where here he is a senior statesman with all this experience. And he goes and becomes the vice president to a young, relatively inexperienced, very popular black man who became, you know, who, who needed him, I think. And so that I think showed some brilliance on the part of Barack Obama. He knew that this balance of this elder statesman of this wisdom was going to be the right mix uh, for him, not just in terms of tone politically to show balance on the ticket, but for him to get that counsel and that input. And, yeah. you know, we probably will never know um, just how much he relied on that. Uh, so then um, the another another tragedy hits with Biden and he decides not to run that first time around. And, um, then uh, when he does run, you know, it's because his country needed him and he knew it. So his poll numbers are down. Um, media sucks when it comes to him. Um, yeah. And I think it's because you don't want to peak too soon. When he starts rising up and same with Kamala Harris, when her numbers start rising, it'll be uh, at a timing of their choosing when it matters and when people are paying attention because the, the vast majority of the electorate doesn't even understand what's going on or they're not paying attention and they're yeah. not on Twitter. Uh, so he's he's this calm, steady as she goes uh, way that he's doing. It, it may seem boring, but we're building a record here so that when the chaos hits a crescendo, and I don't think we've hit the Trump chaos crescendo yet, there's not more quite. to come. Mm -hmm. In the end, it's going to be this quiet, steady, mature, confident, but strong, bold, uh, somewhat boring, um, seemingly boring presidency of Biden that people are going to be like, yeah, we kind of need that. You know, I remember Bill Maher years ago, it was Bob Dole was running and um, they were talking about, you know, do we really need our candidates and presidents to be rock stars. I mean, it gets so silly and blah, blah, blah. He says, I just want a mean old man to watch my money. Got this big <laughs> and um, I, that's where I think there will be a comfort uh, to this. So can I say something about the, the Biden age issue? Yeah, that was, that's actually okay. the next question on my yeah. thing. Biden age. Yes, I know. I know you have a theory about this, which I share. So I do. And I keep <laughs> meaning to write something if I can get somebody to publish it. Uh, um, but and I, I've, I've tweeted about this. Look, um, the Biden age issue, uh, when I hear the media and I hear Democrats talking about it, you know, they shouldn't. They're just following the 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 foot in the footsteps of Republicans. For people to talk about, for Biden, for, for Republicans to talk about Biden's age is ludicrous on its face when his opponent is going to be Donald Trump. Donald Trump is two and a half years younger, but probably 25 years older physically. Donald Trump is in horrible physical shape. He looks like he can stroke out at any moment. Yep. Um, I would laugh. I would love it. I'll just say that out loud. I think he's evil. <laughs> um, and uh, he, he has he's clearly is mentally not there. Uh, Trump is. And so he's extraordinarily um, in, in horrible shape. He can, can't walk up a ramp. Um, you see, Joe Biden is in excellent shape for anybody's age, let alone someone his age. Uh, he's trim. He rides bikes. He's um, healthy. Um, and uh, watching his speech the other night, clearly he's mentally sound. So I don't understand. So when people, they, they talk about the way he speaks, he's obviously overcame a stutter. 
as a, as a child. But uh, Joe Biden is fine. So when people worry about his age next to Trump, I'll tell you what this is. It is a dog whistle against Kamala Harris. The vice president is a black woman and they are and they want everybody to know that. And right now it is black women who are saving this country. You've got um, you've got our judge in in D.C. You've got Fonnie Willis in Atlanta. You've got uh, Tish James in New York. And this is all just by chance. Yeah. Uh, and you've got Joe Biden, who who put in a black woman as a Supreme Court justice, like he said he was going to. So I think a lot of these old white guys uh, and and good old boys didn't see that uh, as these women were coming up through the ranks, they're not part of this white male structure. They don't they don't have to be like Merrick Garland to be afraid of of anybody else or or or. You know, Robert Mueller, you know, we have this protocol and and professionalism and come right. They're like, no, you know, I became a lawyer, a judge because I wanted justice, you know. And so these black women are beholden to no one because they're not a part of that white male patriarchy that generally, you know, promoted people through the ranks. So we are now seeing um, the very positive benefits of some of these women who plugged away at it and start rising into some real positions of power and influence uh, to fix things. And we have a lot of them or a good handful of them right now in these key positions. And I think that Trump doesn't know what to do with them because you can't, I mean, what are you going to do? Um, they, they're not corrupted by um, the white male patriarchy. I mean, you know, I'm sorry, but Merrick Garland wasn't doing the trick. I mean, thank God for, for Jack Smith. Yeah. But um, so you've got you've got Trump um, using some incredibly racist language to um, talk about this, these women in power, the judges and and the people in law enforcement who um, are doing their jobs. And it's this dog whistle because Kamala Harris is just another one of these scary black women. Um, and these are women who have lifted up all women. So it's just this a racist, sexist dog whistle to talk about Joe Biden's age, because all they're saying is, and then you'll have a black woman as vice president or as president if should he die. Uh, and so the standards that people are setting for Kamala Harris, I don't like her. She's not likable. It's like, stop making women have to smile more and be likable, seriously. Or she hasn't done enough to stand out. It's like, do you know the job of a vice president? Did you say the same thing about, about uh, you know, Mike Pence or even Joe Biden when he was um, mm -hmm. a vice president where you didn't see and hear about him a lot? And so even people who presumably are on our side are, are holding her to this different standard. And um, then we need to stop doing that. Frankly, I wish she'd smile less. Yeah, they're saying, well, she seems unserious. You know what? She, yeah, um, especially since she's such a, an attractive woman and everything. I'd like to see Kamala Harris still be engaging and, of course, being herself because she seems like she's a very gregarious person as well. But I'd like to see her. This would be my advice to Democrats: showcase her sometimes when she is serious as a fucking heart attack. Excuse my French, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop worrying about making her be like she needs to be feared and not in the way that they're trying to make people fear her because she's a black woman. Um, unless you want to put the twist on that and say, oh yes. And look what some of these other black women are doing to save our country. Let's have another one. Yes. Yeah. Don't fear, don't fear this. Celebrate this, learn from it, emulate it. Um, and understand that this is a product of us coming further as a nation. And we should be very relieved that um, those efforts are, are proving to be fruitful and do more of it. 
Does that make sense? No, that may. I think it's a it's a it's a good point, and and thank you for articulating it that way because you took it a step further than than even what I had thought um, by you know connecting the dots between uh, everybody in these positions of power now. And I'll add that um, the times when Kamala Harris is the most you know when her approval rating is the highest, it's when she was grilling Kavanaugh. It's when she was oh, making okay. Bill Barr look like a schmuck. It was uh, there was one other guy that she did it to. I can't. Remember. That's a really good observation. So that you're supporting what I'm saying. Is yeah, she yeah, yeah. She wasn't, she wasn't smiling, smiling then. <laughs> he was like she was doing the yeah. You know what you did. She was uh-huh. she was the like school teachery kind of thing. Like yeah, you, you cut class and now you're gonna pay. Like everybody loves that and should. So remind us all how, you know, that you're capable of doing this stuff. So uh, I think yeah, to your point. And, and yeah. the fact that that uh, Joe Biden chose her to be his his mm-hmm. vice presidential running mate uh, was for for a reason. Um, he wanted that, you know, yeah. that's um, he knew that that's what we needed. And I and I think, though, and this this isn't you know a hard and fast rule and there's exceptions to the rule and everything, but. Um, I don't I can't imagine what it's like to grow up a black in America, um, but I know what it's like to experience sexism. And I think racism is, you know, at least it's least neighboring zip codes. So um, I'm thinking, you know, someone who's smart like Joe Biden is thinking, all right, this these this woman or this one or this one. They've had to go through a little bit more and do a little bit more and be a little bit better and hone their judgment and their skills more than maybe their white counterparts or their white male counterparts. So just simple math tells me that we're probably going to get a lot of bang for our buck. Now, hopefully one day you have, um, you know, I used to say this when I was working on the Hill, it's like the women in Congress just were so much better (laughs) by and large than the men. I mean, we didn't have the Marjorie Taylor Greens and, and I, and I just, and, and we used to say that, and my, my friends and I, who all worked on the Hill women friends, we'd be like, we look forward to the day when there's just as many mediocre women in Congress as there are. <laughs> there are, but there's, that, there's yeah. mediocre women too, looking at you. Yeah, well, no, but we're, we're going <laughs> back, but, but I'm just saying that, that at this no, particular right, point yeah. in our nation's history, and you see some, some of these women of color in these positions, just, I mean, I think I don't think it's an overstatement or hyperbole to say they're saving our, our country. Yeah, no, um, you know, and I think part and parcel, it's a function of they had to, you had to be better better than than others um, because we are a country that is sexist and we're a country that is still racist. And if you've come up through those ranks and you've had to succeed while going through all of that, you're probably going to be. You're going to have that little extra sauce to bring. And right now, America needs the extra sauce. And um, I just love watching it, you know. No, it's great. It is, it is great. And, um, you know, you're right about the, the the you know, the Congress women being, being better. I mean, I think AOC is going to be president at some point, like in the not too distant future. I just think it's, you know, first of all, everybody under the age of 30 loves her, like loves yeah. her. And, uh, you know. Try saying try saying something bad about her on Twitter. Just try. Actually, don't ever. Yeah. Because it that you know people come in and they don't like it, and it's not bots. It's real people. You know, she yeah. her, her her rating among the rank and file is very very high, and uh, you know we're going to see. Um, so speaking of Congress, uh, we talked about this a bit before. Um, everything's nuts there now because we do not have a Speaker <laughs> of the House. Um, which again, eh, we just shrug. Oh, I don't know. We don't really. Do we need one? I guess maybe we don't. You know, I, we went from 
from Pelosi to nobody. I mean, it is the idea like yeah. nobody can fill that seat. And um, why? I, I'm just the whole thing is puzzling to me. Oh, they um, shouldn't send a man to do a woman's job. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't. Um, not it's true. Puzzling there are many me. competent men. Oh, no. Not all men, Sherry. No. Uh, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't understand what they're up to. Like, I feel like uh, I think this is a Trump thing. I, I, I had Tony Michaels on my show, uh, the podcaster, who's, who's great. And he was saying, this is all Trump. Trump runs that whole thing. Yes. They go into their little room and they take yes. orders from him. And that's what happens. And he says, yes. do this. And they do it. He says, run Jim Jordan out there again. And they do it. And, you know, I but I don't understand. Why did Matt Gates take out McCarthy? Like it was it oh, just, man, I, I don't I'm so get... scared to say this, but I think that we still could end up with Speaker Trump, two heartbeats from the presidency. And that terrifies me. Uh, and we are getting closer to that type of a crisis. Um, first of all, it would he could he could kill a lot of this legal stuff against him. Um, and um, I do think that he would have his violent Second Amendment people, as he calls them, take care of the first two heartbeats. Uh, he's got this religious nut lady saying on her little videos yesterday saying he's going to be president in a way that's never happened before in this country. I'm thinking, oh, shit. Um, so I do think that, um, again, this this goes to there's an overall plan, but not everybody knows um, the whole plan. But I don't think that you know, but when they. Matt Gates was saying last no, January, he, he I think he nominated or was talking about Trump, um, a voter for Trump to be speaker. And you don't have to be a member of the House of Representatives to mm-hmm. be speaker. And also people say, well, there's this rule um, that you can't be indicted. Well, it's a Republican conference rule. And right. that means that that rule can be overturned with a simple majority of Republican only votes. So that's not an issue. I tweet that all the time because people come back at me this stuff. I love how they think I don't know this stuff. I spent how many years working <laughs> on Capitol Hill and in the leadership. So, you know, I, and it's arcane stuff. It's not like everybody yeah. knows this, like, duh, you know, it's not it, it, it's it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. It's parliamentary Congress rules are boring yeah. as fuck. I'm sorry. And you, yeah. So so, yes, Trump can still be speaker. So out of chaos comes Trump, because remember, Trump and this is what Putin teaches him. Trump succeeds and thrives in the chaos. And so right now we're at a fever pitch of the chaos. They cannot, we already are hearing some members of Congress saying Trump is the only person who can do this job. And I heard that yesterday. So it's still out there. And I think it's a very real danger. And no, this is not tinfoil hat stuff. Some have talked about it. They have planned for it. Um, And I don't think that those brave Republicans that voted against Trump's nominee, Trump's person, uh, Jim Jordan, would have the guts necessarily to vote against Trump. Um, So this is very real. And, uh, you know, Jim Jordan having people call people's spouses um, and threatening them for not voting for Jim Jordan is a very different situation than people being threatened by Trump. And we've seen this repeatedly. Uh, People think the stuff that works for Trump is going to work for them, and it doesn't. Um, It seems to be Trump specific. But um, I do think that, yeah, this is, you know, Putin is very pleased with what's happening in the House of Representatives right now. Um, This is not tinfoil hat conspiracy stuff. And if we wait till stuff happens to go, oh, she was right. Um, This is very much in the mix. Will it happen? I don't know. But to to act like this is, oh, this can never happen. It's absolutely impossible. And then people come up with their reasons. One of them is the Republicans own rule says you can't 
can't be indicted. It's like they can change it tomorrow mm-hmm. and they don't need all of them. It will take half of the it, it would take only half of Republicans plus one to overturn that rule. Far fewer than it would take to, you know, secure a nomination for a speaker. And so this is what scares me that I, I just have this sick feeling that this chaos is somewhat intentional, that um, Trump is the master of chaos and he does have help from Putin. Um, nobody was really predicting this chaos. You have to ask yourself, why did Matt Gates? first of all, um, this rule that they adopted in January, um, that was the condition of McCarthy becoming speaker, was that anybody um, could call for a vote for speaker. Why did Matt Gates choose now? Right before everything blew up in the Middle East, yeah. right as Trump's legal problems are blowing up in his face. I mean, they could, Trump becomes speaker, they defund everything. These investigations, these court cases, he, he's, he skates or he gets it tied up enough. And um, that's if he's speaker, certainly as if he's president. And so we already know that his violent supporters would do this. Remember, on January 6th, Kamala Harris, vice president-elect then, then vice president-elect Kamala Harris was taking a scheduled but non-public visit to the DNC on January 6th. Okay. So he was still using the Trump secret service, as was Biden at that time. In So they would have done a pre-visit bomb sweep of the DNC and surrounding areas. That occurred. And they missed pipe bomb. Yeah, come on. Well, yeah, on. and she's also in the in the the Capitol when it was stormed and besieged by Trump's people who were trying mm-hmm. to do violence. I mean, mm-hmm. I think if those if they got through the the uh, the gates and the barriers and actually, you know, what would they have done to Nancy Pelosi or Kamala Harris if they encountered them? They weren't going to just killed them. They would have killed them. They would not going to argue with them. them. You know, those two and AOC, I think, were the three people highest on their list of people they would want to meet in the alleyway. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I think this is it. You've been on the speaker, the Trump speaker thing for a while now, and people are now seriously proposing it. And I think, you know, coming in uh, as we either have no speaker or Trump, that's not really a choice, but it seems like that's, you know, it's certainly not, it's a non-zero possibility at this point, and it would be catastrophic. And the other point that you made, which I think is important, is the timing. Putin ramps up all of the terror attacks, you know, these just bombing like funerals and uh, hotels and stuff in Kherson. There's a situation in Nagorno-Karabakh where the Azeris take that over from the Armenians. That causes chaos. And then the Hamas attack in Israel, all at a time when we don't have a Speaker of the House and therefore can't fund anything. So it's, you know, I I find it very, very hard to believe that it's uh, a coincidence, especially when really the main thing that Kevin McCarthy was able to get through was to, you know, keep up the funding from Ukraine, like, or to separate that. That was the one thing Gates insisted on when he kept him around as long as he did the last time. So if that's the main thing that they want is for us not to pay for Ukraine anymore, I, I I don't know what more proof that we need that these guys are working for for the bad guys, you know, the Russians. I mean, they're, they're whether they're consciously doing it or not, they're helping them in this war. I mean, they just are. Well, know? and this is the type of thing um, that should be discussed in the political segments on MSNBC and CNN, frankly. Uh, um, and I and I they need to do a better job I mean, of some of the. I mean, 
it's it's all money. So if you're with a group that's spending a lot of money on these networks, they'll put you on or someone's friend or whatever, but it's become a little bit show business. And so these are people who aren't capable of having these types of discussions. Uh, history will look back on this era and say, why didn't people know? It's so clear, you know, it, mm-hmm. with with the you know the benefit of time and and hindsight and everything to see what was happening. Why didn't the people who had a voice know this? How could they have have let this go? And you see this happen throughout history. Um, and so it would be something like this discussion here um, we're having you know, on a podcast. This is the discussion that should be had, I think, in, in a very serious way. Uh, regularly, daily, uh, as a, as a key issue uh, on the, the cable nets. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you're seeing more, I think there's more, the word fascist has appeared more I've seen mm-hmm. in print anyway. So I think there is a very, very, very slow move to, in that direction, but it's, I don't know, it might just be, it's like the, the Jack Smith thing. It might just be too little too late. I mean, um, yeah. And you not. have some yeah key uh, voices in the media and anchors and whatever that you know, did the bidding of their bosses um, and shut a lot of these discussions. Now, now they're trying to play catch up, maybe save their position in history or something. You know, I love that Jay Capper, Tapper finally found his voice on this. But, you know, he was spouting company lines um, when they had the different boss there after Zucker left and, and for Zucker, in fact. And I like Jake and I think that he's a journalist. But when people um, when journalists really don't have the permission to really be journalists because of the the suits that are running things. Um, remember too, that uh, MSNBC can be quote left wing because they are attached to NBC. And I had somebody who's worked at CNN high up, actually went on my podcast anonymously a couple of times to explain how this works. Um, everybody is chasing those super PAC dollars and that dark money. And increasingly you don't have product commercials on cable networks. You do on the commercial networks on NBC, CBS, ABC, but not the others. And so increasingly they make their money through this political money and it's all right wing. There's mm. so much right wing money out there. And so they're going to bow to that. And that's what CNN was doing. They were, they were trying to get that right wing uh, money to be spent on their network. Um, and that's what Fox does. And that's what Newsmax is doing. And that's what News Nation is trying to do. Uh, MSNBC is not beholden to that because they're a part of NBC. And so they're still under that umbrella of making their money um, through the regular national network, which is product. We're going to sell cars. We're going to sell dish soap, you know, that type of thing. Right. Um, we're not doing, um, you know, this political stuff. And so when that was explained to me, I was like, oh my God, you know, it's so clear. Always follow the money because they are not keeping um, this wall between news and the suits. Yeah, which is, has, you know, traditionally in journalism, there's always a wall between the editor and the publisher. There's not, they're not even supposed to communicate. Um, it's like the yeah. pack, the super pack and, and the candidate, you know, they're not supposed to communicate. Um, they do, but you know that traditionally they're not supposed to. So you know, uh, uh, like many things, the distinctions have been blurred, and we're all the worse off for it. So now you mentioned your podcast, um, which is called Politics with Sherry Jacobus. It's on Patreon. It's a Patreon or Patreon? I never know. Patreon. Yeah, I never know how to pronounce it. So it's excellent. Um, people should go uh, sign up for it. Um, where can people find you? You're still on Twitter. I'm on Twitter and you can have the links to the the podcast uh, on my Twitter profile. So Twitter is at Sherry Jacobus. I'm on threads at Sherry Jacobus one. Uh, I'm on the other ones, but I'm not. I mean, I have accounts, but I haven't done it. I can't do five different 
Yeah. I think so uh, it's Twitter and threads for me yeah. right now. Um, and again, and Patreon. So I hope everybody will support my work um, and uh, sign up. I used to have it on like the Apple and all that kind of stuff, but um, you know, I need to make a little bit of money. So it's just, it's like five bucks a month, but um, we have good conversations. Greg has been a guest I have. a few times. Yes. I've had Peter Strzok. I've had, you know, Eric Swalwell, you know, I have some good guests. I've had John Cryer, Morgan Fairchild, because people like that, Tom Arnold. Uh, so I like, oh, and, and Heather Thomas, you know, she actually has this great organization, um, to help people vote and sign up for voting. Uh, so, uh, you know, the celebrities that are politically active are always fun as well as the big political names. So we have fun. We have fun. Yeah, it's good. I was going to ask if you're on Blue Sky, but I know you're on Blue Sky because you invited me to Blue Sky. But and then I don't. But you're never there. there. <laughs> yeah, you're never there. I love Blue Sky is great, by the way. So you thank like you. Blue Sky better than Threads? I don't. I don't. Je ne Zuckerberg do pas. Je ne Zuckerberg oh, okay. pas. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, that's okay. not true. I have a Facebook and everything, but I'm just, I can't. Well, maybe I better get on blue sky too, and just start spending my entire day just going you know, from one to the other. You know? <laughs> like you said, like I can only, my brain can only process so much, like how many feeds <laughs> do I have to have? And, you know, I, I don't know at the end, after a while, it just becomes ridiculous. Um, yeah. So Sherry Jacobus, this was great to talk to you today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossett. Serena Zabriskie, Marie Cast, and Martha Acuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, Kimberly Johnson, and everyone else at MSW Media. If you'd like to support this program, get three friends to subscribe. The more downloads I get, the better the show does. You can also subscribe to The 5-8 the live YouTube show I do with my friend Stephanie Koff, a.k.a. LB. Tune in tonight for your Friday night hang. Most importantly, please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $6 monthly or $55 yearly subscription funds my work on the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Be kind to each other. Try and enjoy yourself. And until next time. We shall prevail. M S W Media.